Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. May the name of our Lord be praised forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we praise you indeed for the gift of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We are, our, our voices unite with the angels who cry, holy, 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 because you are so awesome to us. Thank you for loving us, and now as we open your word, we pray for the understanding that only you can give, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Today's our third installment of Sabbath Evangelism. By the way, there's two gentlemen that just joined us earlier that weren't here, so welcome. Thank you for joining us here this morning as we worship our Lord or this afternoon already, that's okay. So last time we, um, we talked about who is God. Um, we, we looked at God because, of course, uh, um, there are many who don't believe that there is a God, and so we, we looked at nature primarily as evidence the, of the reality that God does exist, that God is real. Is God real in your life? Well, today we're going to look at the question is, who is Jesus? We're still not on the screen there, but who is Jesus? Um, of course, Jesus is, is primarily who we follow, right? We are Christians, and as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Is he your Messiah? Is he your Savior and Lord? Well, you know, what evidence do we have what evidence do we have from Scripture and from any other source that proves that Jesus is indeed the Messiah? I believe that he is, but we're going to look at it today. Who is Jesus is the question. You know, after Jerusalem's fall and, and destruction in the year 70 A.D., Hadrian, the Roman emperor, built another city in Jerusalem. And then he also erected a shrine to Jupiter the Roman God, in the very spot where the old Jewish temple was located. And then, as if to add insult to injury, he actually issued an edict forbidding the practice of circumcision. Now, of course, the Jews are being oppressed. They're being persecuted by the Romans. And, and this was only bearable to the Jews because they believed that soon the Messiah was coming. They believed that the Messiah was coming and, and that he was, was going to liberate them in freedom from the Roman oppression. As you know, of course, the Jews did not accept Jesus as their Messiah because Jesus did not come as they expected. He, he came as a suffering servant, not as the mighty conqueror that they were expecting. So now here, after the year 70 AD, they're, they're, they're experiencing persecution, they're experiencing oppression, and, and, but, but in their minds there's a light at the end of the tunnel because the Messiah was going to come to freedom finally from the Roman oppression. And it was during this time that a young zealot by the name of Bar Koba came into the scene, and he rallied thousands of young zealots in his, in his purpose and his declared cause of liberating the Jews from Roman oppression. He, just, he said that he was a luminary that was sent to them by God, and he actually declared himself to be the Messiah. In fact, because he had that, that purpose, oh, we're going to take over and defeat those Romans, of course, everybody believed him because that's what the Jews were expecting. 
But Varkova was a, an imposter. He was simply a common fraud. Well, a century before, another man claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, he claimed to be the Son of God. His name was Jesus, a young carpenter from the small city of Nazareth. But who was Jesus of Nazareth? Was he a teacher? Was he a, a philosopher? Was he a healer? Was he a prophet? Yes, perhaps to all those things. When he walked the dusty roads of Palestine, those who saw him were awed by his presence. Those who heard him declared, as we read in John 7, 46, that no man ever spoke like this man. There was something about Jesus. There was something about how he spoke. There was something about his presence that attracted so many to him. He lived on earth less than 35 years, but all of history is dated from his birth. In fact, one writer put it this way in the essay, One Solitary Life. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that ever sailed, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as this one solitary life. Is that, is that your experience too? But few would disagree with these facts, of course. But unless Jesus is more than that, he really isn't the Messiah. You know, just like Bar Koba, Jesus claimed to be from heaven. Jesus said in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven. Just like Bar Koba, Jesus said that he came to deliver the captives. But of course, Barcoba wanted to liberate the Jews from Roman oppression. Jesus came to liberate us from sin. And he did it with love and not force. And yet still, this doesn't answer the question of who is Jesus. Was Jesus the Messiah? Because the fact is, many men came in during the first century claiming to be the Messiah. And so what evidence do we have that proves that Jesus is what he claimed to be? Well, Jesus told us how we are to look for that evidence. John 5.39, our scripture reading says that the scriptures, these are they which testify of me. Jesus is the central figure of scripture, friends. Everything speaks of him. Everything points to him. And of course, when Jesus makes this declaration, he is talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament has not been written yet. And so what Jesus is saying is that the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament, everything points to him. Everything testifies that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But now, scholars and historians, they tell us that Jesus fulfilled 355 Old Testament prophecies. 355 prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, there was a man by the name of Peter Stoner. He's a doctor, uh, author of a book called Science Speaks. And he, and he decided that he was going to calculate the odds. He was a mathematician. And he decided, I'm going to calculate the odds of, of Jesus. What are the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 355 prophecies. Now, I'm not sure why he chose eight, and certainly he's a mathematician. I don't know what he did to make these calculations, but that's what they do, the mathematicians. How, what are the odds of Jesus cal uh, of fulfilling just eight 
of the 355 prophecies about him. You know what he found? This is interesting. The odds of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus is one with 28 zeros behind it. That's just eight of these prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 355 of the prophecies of him. Amen? That tells us, friend, that this book is not just another book. This is the Word of God. Can you trust it? Can you say amen? 355 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Now, of course, we're going to turn into some of the Old Testament prophecies. We're not going to look at all of them. But we're going to see, indeed, that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. Now, at the gates of the Garden of Eden, the Lord gave Adam and Eve the first promise of a deliverer. In his rebuke of Satan, the serpent, he said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, a day would come when a child would be born who would break the power of Satan. But in doing so, he, 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 he would receive a painful wound. And you know, Eve hoped, I'm sure, that her, one of her sons was going to be the fulfillment of that promise. In fact, mothers uh, of the, in the Old Testament times in Israel probably wondered often if their child would finally be the one that would be that deliverer, the promised one. Now, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah talked about how this deliverer would be born. Notice Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. When we go into the New Testament, in the book of Luke, chapter 1, there he describes the, the birth of Jesus. Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. The angel Gabriel sent, was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel said to her, you will conceive in your womb and you bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus. Centuries before the birth of Christ, the prophet Micah told us the place where Jesus was going to be born. Notice Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth to me the one who would be ruler in Israel. Who is he talking about here? Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah would be born in a place called Bethlehem. Now, you think about this. Jesus was from Nazareth. Gabriel went to Nazareth to talk to, to Mary. And, and really up to a week before his birth, you would have thought, well, he's going to be born in, in Nazareth. But something happened. We read about it in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In those days that a decree out went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into where? Bethlehem to be registered with Mary. And he describes what happens afterwards they arrive in Bethlehem. And while they were there, the days were completed to, for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her son, her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Friends, he was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem, and he was born in Bethlehem. The Bible fulfills, the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament, friends. Great moment. 
Patriarchs and prophets, priests and scribes, mothers and fathers had longed for finally the birth of the Messiah. But you know what? When, when, when Jesus finally came, you could hear the crickets. There was no fanfare. There was no expectation. Nobody was there. There was no music. There was no celebration. In fact, uh, uh, the angels had to appear to uh, 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 a group of shepherds to tell them the news that the Messiah was born. Notice uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 11, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They should have known. They should have expected, but they weren't prepared. Until 30 years of age, Jesus worked as a carpenter. And then in the year 27 AD, he finally closed the doors of his carpenter shop. And he head out to the Jordan River to hear his cousin who was preaching and was teaching and by the way, I want you to remember this year, 27 A.D., because we're going to go back to it here in a little bit. But that's the year that Jesus goes to the desert to hear John the Baptist, and he's baptized there. John baptizes him, and eventually Jesus enters into a ministry that would lead him to Calvary. Centuries before, the Isaiah, uh, prophet Isaiah foretold the work of the Messiah with these words. Notice Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to comfort all who mourn. And 700 years later, there in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus stood up to read, and he he read the scroll of Isaiah, and after he was done, he he wrapped it up and put it away, and then he declared there in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah was referring to the work of the Messiah, and this is exactly what Jesus would do. But now, was this an idle claim that Jesus made? Was, what, what, what was Jesus' ministry like? Did he really meet the needs of those who came to him? Well, the fact is there is no record of anybody that came for him for encouragement or that came to him for healing that wasn't made whole. In fact, Luke says in, in Luke 6.19 that everyone sought to touch him for power went out from him and he healed them all. That's what Jesus did. Crippled bodies were made whole, withered muscles were were renewed. By just a touch of his hand or a word from his lips, the blind were made to see, the dumb were made to sing, the deaf were made to hear. And we hear the story of of his friend Lazarus who had died, who had been in, in the tomb for four days, and Jesus comes there and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes out of the tomb. The the, the tears of of pain were turned into tears of joy. This was typical to the ministry of Jesus. His messages were filled with joy and optimism. He kept saying to the depressed, be of good cheer. Are you depressed today? Be of good cheer. To those who are burdened, he said, don't worry, take heart, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus accepted everybody as they were whatever their frailties were, and because he accepted them in love and and understanding, they were changed. They were transformed. They were made better. We read the story of, in John chapter uh, 8, of uh, the adulterous woman who was brought before Jesus. 
A group of self-righteous men brought her uh, to Jesus to see if, if, if he would condemn her to death by stoning. Of course, they were just tricking him to see if they could accuse him before the Roman authorities. And Jesus writes there on the sand a few embarrassing anecdotes of their lives. And one by one, they leave. And then he tells the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Isaiah the prophet had prophesied many years before that the anointed one, this is what he would do. He would give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But now the most detailed evidence proving the divinity of Jesus is his death and resurrection. In the book of Psalms, his, the identity of the one who would, who would betray the Messiah was prophesied 1,000 years before the, uh, this event took place, before the death of Jesus. Notice Psalm 41.9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And of course, later Matthew, he talks about this. He tells how the prophecy was fulfilled. The angry mob with their clubs and their swords climbed the mountainside. And who was leading them? Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who had just eaten with them hours before in the Last Supper. And as Jesus walked toward the mob, he asked, whom do you seek? And back came to shout, Jesus of Nazareth. And notice what, what uh, uh, Judas tells him. Greetings, Rabbi. How, what a hypocrite, right? Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him, on Jesus, and took him. In fact, even, even the price that would be paid for his betrayal was prophesied many, many hundreds of years before. Notice that Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. And so they weighed out my way. Just how many pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Well, Matthew talks about this, gives us the details of the betrayal of Jesus. Matthew 26, 14 and 15. Then one of the 12, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out how many? 30 pieces of silver. Now, but after Jesus had been condemned, Judas ran back to the chief priest because things didn't work out as he expected. We read in Matthew 27, 5 through 7, that he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Notice exactly the prophecy of Zechariah hundreds of years before fulfilled with mathematical precision. Once again, we see that the New Testament, my friends, records the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And friends, it is because this is a divine book. This is not just a story book. This is not just a history book. This is the word of God, friends. We can trust it. We can trust it. Isaiah also prophesied uh, of the Messiah saying in Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and from spitting. 
And of course, G- Matthew once again talks about the details of that night. And Jesus, as taken as a common criminal, was taken before Caiaphas and, and he tried illegally in the middle of the night. And notice what it says, Matthew 26, 67. Then they spat in his face and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. The next morning, they take him to Pontius Pilate, the, the Roman governor, and, and they had all kinds of fake news about Jesus, all kinds of false witnesses about Jesus. But Jesus, not speak a word. They take him to King Herod, and as a way of a joke, he dresses him in a robe of, of a king. And then he sends him back to to Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate, they could not find anything against him, and yet still he had him beaten. Finally, the, uh, Pilate went through the angry mob, and, and he gave him a choice. He presented him Jesus and presented him the notorious criminal Barabbas. And who do you choose? Barabbas. What shall we do with this Jesus then? Crucify him. Crucify him. Now, this is very important. Hundreds of years before the crucifixion was invented as a method of executing criminals by the Romans, the psalmist predicted the way that Jesus was going to be killed. Now, this is important because if you're a Jew and you're talking about the execution of somebody, you would automatically think, well, they're going to stone him because that's how the Jews stoned, uh, killed or, or executed the criminals. But that's not what the psalmist says. Notice David in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, they says they pierced my hands and my feet. Hundreds of years before the, the cross was invented as a method of execution, executing criminals. Of course, Matthew talks about the crown of thorns that was smashed on his head. And they smote him on the head. At Calvary, Jesus meekly allowed the soldiers to drive the spikes through his hands and through his feet. And later on... Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas because Jesus appears and he didn't believe, but he talks about the way that Jesus died. Notice John 20, verse 25, unless I see the prince of the nails and put my finger into the prince of the nails, I will not believe. Why did he say that? Because he was there when Jesus, was, when Jesus died. Jesus was crucified, just like David said, just like the Bible says. His hands and his feet were pierced by nails, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy. David also told what would happen to the clothing of Jesus there at the cross. Notice Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John talks about the fulfillment of the prophecy. He's an eyewitness. John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. Then the soldiers took his garments and made four parts. And each soldier apart. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And then they said, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose names it shall be. Once again, prophecy is fulfilled exactly. In fact, the Bible even prophesied the words of Jesus, that what he would say there on the cross. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, you know, there are those who are critical. They say, well, you know, uh, it, it was just that, that the writers and the disciples made it appear that way. But the fact of the matter is there are certain things that Jesus in his human way could not control. 
He cannot control the place of his birth. He cannot control the manner of his birth or his betrayal or the events surrounding his death. This, this was fulfilled that way because it's providential, because God said it would happen in his word. However, one of the most decisive prophecies that prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is what he, what he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, has to do with the time of his appearance. The time of his appearance. After the Jews had been um, taken into captivity by the, <clears throat> the Babylonians, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, appears to the prophet Daniel, and he tells the prophet Daniel about the coming of the Messiah. Notice Daniel 9.25. Now therefore... Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now how much is seven plus 62? We're going to do some math today. Are you sure? Yeah, 69. It's not a trick question, Stacey. 69 is just the wording. Let me give you a little bit of background here. Gabriel appears to the prophet Daniel, we read about this in chapter 8, and he gives him a time prophecy, a prophecy of 2,300 years, or 2,300 days, but we'll, we'll explain that, why is it years in a minute. And in Daniel 8, we see that, as we read, that Daniel could not understand this prophecy. In fact, he got, he, he got so overwhelmed by that he got sick, we read about in Daniel 8. Well, in Daniel 9, Gabriel comes back uh, sometime later to explain the prophecy because he couldn't explain it in chapter 8 because Daniel got sick. So he comes back in Daniel 9 to explain the prophecy, but this time he breaks it down in chunks, more manageable chunks for him, easy to understand. And so in Daniel chapter 9, uh, he gives uh, 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 Daniel a prophecy of 70 weeks, the 70 weeks. Now, in Scripture, in prophecy, there is a rule of how to interpret time prophecies. And that rule says that a prophetic day equals what? A little year. This is not just Seventh-day Adventists who believe this. This is Protestants through the years have always believed the same thing because it's a biblical principle. And we'll see why here in a second. So, so here, Daniel is given this 70-week prophecy. But now... How many days are in 70 weeks? Well, you just do a little bit of multiplication. Seven days per week times 70 is 490. So again, you got 490 days in 70 weeks. But according to the rule, one prophetic day equals what? One literal year. So this is why you have on the top there, 70 weeks equal 490 literal years. So this is the prophecy. The Gabriel breaks down the 2300-year prophecy in that first chunk of 70 weeks. Then he further breaks it down when he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, they shall be 69 weeks. We saw 7 plus 62 is 69. So we do the math again. 7 days per week times 69 is 483. But a prophetic day equals a literal year, so you have 483 years. Are you with me? All right, okay. Now, again, this is a biblical principle. Ezekiel 4, 6 tells us, I've laid on you a day for a year. So this is, you know, there's others. On Numbers chapter 14, you may remember the story of the 12 spies who are sent to Canaan to scope out the place. 
And 12 of them go in there, and they're there for 40 days. They come back after 40 days and give a report to Moses. But all of them except for two, Joshua and Caleb, give a bad report. They say, well, you know, it's a great place and everything, but there are giants there. They're going to eat us alive. We can't take them. They didn't trust that God would take them into Canaan. And so what did God do? Well, you don't believe me? You don't trust me that I can do this? Fine, then. Well, you're going to stay in the desert a year for every day that you were there. How many days were there in Canaan? Forty days. And how many years they spend in the desert? Forty years. Jesus himself in Luke 13 uses the same principle. So this is a well-known principle, a day for a year. So notice then. 69 weeks. We're looking at the first 69 of the 70 weeks. It's 483 years. Now, Babylon destroys Jerusalem, including the temple, when they're taken into captivity. Babylon, of course, doesn't last forever. The Medo-Persian Empire destroys Babylon, and Medo-Persia allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem and build the temple and eventually build the entire city. We know that the, Daniel 9 tells us that's from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Historically, we know when that happened. It's a solid date in history. It was 457 B.C. King Artaxerxes gives the Jews the ability, uh, the right to go back and rebuild not only the temple but the city. And so that's 457 B.C. You can look this up, and it's right there in history. So if you have the, the, the start of the date, right, 457 B.C., again, Daniel said that from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 69 weeks or 483 years. So all you have to do is a math. Add 483 years to 457, and that takes you to the year 27 A.D. I told you to remember that date earlier. Now, again, this is until Messiah the Prince. Now, the, 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 the Hebrew word Messiah, the Greek word Christ, means the anointed one. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, until the anointed one. When was Jesus anointed? When? 27 AD. Now notice here, because Luke pinpoints this historically. Luke chapter 3, verses 1, 21 and 22. Now in the 15th year... Of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And when he prayed, and while he prayed, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you, shall, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. So notice the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Paul actually says it in Acts 10.28, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is anointed in the year 27 AD. The Messiah comes exactly at the end of the 69 weeks, just like Daniel was, uh, was told about in Daniel chapter 9. In fact, this is one of the, the major prophecies that the, some of the Jews, when they, when they finally understand this prophecy, they, they, they have no other choice but say, Jesus must be the Messiah. Because it's just clear, friends. So, again, let's do some math. Historians tell us that Tiberius Caesar began his reign in the year 12 A.D. And so, what we read in Luke chapter 3 is that on the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's when Jesus is baptized. So, you add 15 to 12, and that takes you to the year 27 A.D. Exactly the 483, uh, the, uh, the 69 weeks 
under 483 years is fulfilled with mathematical precision. No other book could do this, friends. Only the Word of God. Only the Word of God. But now, you see there on the screen, remember, Gabriel breaks down the 2,300-year prophecy into a smaller chunk, the first 70 weeks, and then he further breaks it down into 69. So the first 69 weeks take us to the anointing of Jesus, the Messiah. That means that we still have one week left, right? The 70 week, or week number 70. So again, one week has seven days, so a day for a year. So in reality, we have seven years, the last seven years of that prophecy. And we're told that in the last part of that prophecy, that last week of that prophecy, in the middle of that prophecy, something was going to happen. Now, how much is half of seven? Three and a half. How much did the ministry of Jesus last? Three and a half. From the, minute he was, from the moment he was baptized in 27 AD, three and a half years later, it takes us to uh, his death in, in the year 31. But notice, Daniel 9, 27 says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's that last week, week number 70. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. This, this passage, by the way, is mistakenly applied to the Antichrist, believe it or not. But it's about Jesus. Because Jesus fulfilled that prophecy exactly. In the half of the last week, three and a half years later, in the year 31 AD, Jesus is crucified. And notice what happens, Mark talks about what happens when Jesus died on the cross. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now you say, well, why, why is that significant? Well, simple. When Jesus dies, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All the sacrifices and all the ceremonies that they did in the, in, in, in the sanctuary were fulfilled in Jesus. It all pointed to Christ. When, the, when he finally dies on the cross, there's no need to do further sacrifices. And so this is why the veil of the temple is torn in two. Because now we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Because Jesus died on the cross. So now, and thankfully, we don't have to do sacrifices anymore. Aren't you, aren't you glad for that? The Apostle Paul, who studied the Old Testament prophecies and, and gathered evidence from eyewitnesses of the events of the crucifixion of Jesus' life and death, he tells Timothy later on, 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Friends, Jesus was what he claimed to be. Jesus is the Messiah. And as he, as he hung on that cross, his back lacerated from the cruel beatings, his hands and his feet pierced by those nails, his head bleeding because of the thorns, enduring the mockery and the jeers of the crowd. And at that moment, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels and he would have destroyed the world and set him free. He could have done that like this. But you see, Jesus could not save himself and save you too. And so he chose you. He chose you. He could have called 10,000 angels to set him free, but thank God that he didn't. Thank God that he didn't. He paid my price. He paid your price, your debt of sin. You know, it's not necessary for you to form an opinion about, you know, people like Alexander the Great or, say, Karl Marx or John F. Kennedy, Queen Elizabeth. 
you know, these are, you know, characters in history, but, but they've gone, they've died, and, and they really don't have an influence or impact in your life. Yeah. But when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to Jesus, we are brought face to face with reality. You have to make a choice. You have to choose. And the choice that we have is the same choice that Jesus you know, gave his followers back then when he told his disciples. You may remember, he, 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 he talked to his disciples, he asked them a question. Uh, what do people say? Who, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some people say that you're Elijah or, or, or this or that. And then he asked, well, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? This is the same question that Jesus is asking you and me today. Who do you say I am? Who is Jesus to you? And we talk about all this, and it's true, the Bible fulfills itself, it's powerful. But when it's all said and done, if Jesus is just a historical figure to you, it means nothing. Jesus must be your Savior and Lord. Is that who he is? What is Jesus to you? Is he your Lord? Is he your Messiah? If you have not received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, this is a proof that he is. And it is time for you to do that. Friends, uh, you know, when we think about the, the events of this world, you, you ha- we have to come to an understanding, and I say this respectfully because we've been praying about this, but the fact is things aren't going to get better. You cannot expect things to go better. The only solution to the problems of this world is Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. But if Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven and he isn't your Savior, you are done. And so today I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you and say, Lord, you know, maybe I haven't, I haven't been consecrated enough. Maybe I haven't never done this. Maybe this is a step that I've never taken. And today you want to say, yes, I'm going to take that step finally in my life. And tell Jesus, yes, I, I, am, I am your servant. You are my Savior and Lord. And he extends his arm to you right now. And he's willing to accept you as you are. So if you are making Jesus your Savior and your Lord today, I just want you to ask, stand up right now and tell him, listen, there's nobody more important to me than my Messiah, than Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. He's inviting you. No matter how difficult things get, If Jesus is your Savior, you're going to make it through. You're going to make it through. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word, Lord, for how powerful you have revealed yourself. And we thank you for the evidence of your word that that, that, that son that you gave is indeed your son, the Messiah, the one who paid for our debt of sin. And it is because of what he did that we have the certainty of our sins being forgiven and eternal life. Oh, Lord, may we live for you because you gave it all for us. We thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org. Dot O-R-G.